Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome. To Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long forgotten murders, all set within London's West End. Today's episode is about Vera Crawford, an unwell woman who was found dead in her hotel bed. It seemed as if she died from natural causes but being required to inform the victim's next of kin, the police uncovered a murder which was both sinister and tragic. Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatisation of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 72, Vera Crawford, A Very Ordinary Murder. Today, I'm standing on Grenville Street, WC1, three streets south of the square where the body parts of Emmeline Gerard were dumped, one street east of the hotel where the unfortunate Mr. Johnson's killer took a quick snooze, two blocks east of the university where nursing a sore neck, Carl Stotter realised he had narrowly missed being the next victim of serial killer Dennis Nielsen, and a short walk from the Tavistock and Russell Square bombings. Coming soon... To Murder Mile. Grenville Street is an unsightly side street surrounded by hotels, hospitals, and hostels. Snuck between Soho and King's Cross in what is dubbed the fashionable district of Bloomsbury. Fashionable if you're a former Victorian slave master who wears a monocle, a cane, and a top hat. Lament about the good old days when you could own your own pet Geordie eat a rhino, execute anyone who didn't school at Eton, be acquitted of all historical sex crimes with a wink, and could make a mint, saving relics from jolly foreigner, having flogged them off to the British Museum. Ah, happy days, eh, Boris? With a long terrace of three-storey Georgian terrace houses on the left, 
an odd greasy spoon cafe smack bang in the middle, a hospital at both ends, and on the right is a disgusting seven-story 1960s halls of residence called International Hall. An architectural eyesore full of student doctors, all using their medical training to nurse a three-year hangover, with the hope of coming away with more than just a huge debt, a lack of sleep, and a buggered liver. And yet, on the site of these student halls, at number one Grenville Street, in a hotel imaginatively titled Grenville Hotel, once lay a woman even they couldn't save. As it was here, on Saturday the 18th of September, 1948, in room one of the Grenville Hotel, that the seemingly ordinary death of a customer would lead to the arrest of an unusual murderer. The Grenville Hotel was a sparsely furnished four-storey townhouse, providing a simple bed and breakfast for just 30 shillings a night. Like many buildings which had survived the Blitz, with windows broken, roof tiles missing, and the side wall buckled, having suffered subsidence after a German bomb left a 10-foot hole in the road. Deemed structurally sound, although it was a mess, it was business as usual. At 7.30am, Paul Jenkins, the manager, unlocked the front door, picked up the post, and began making breakfast for the hotel's guests. Seven customers in four of the 16 rooms, with a new couple, Mr. and Mrs. Savile in room one, rooms four, five, and six occupied by three elderly residents, the hotel's owner, Mary Rock, in room two, and when they turned up, a cuppa for the builders renovating the top floor. At 9am, as requested, Paul took a tray of tea to Mrs. Savile in room one. He knocked, but got no reply. He knocked again. Your tea's here, ma'am. But again, he got no reply. So we unlocked the door. Situated on the ground floor annex at the hotel's rear, Room 1 was 10 feet long by 13 feet wide, with no windows, just a skylight above, and everything you would expect from a budget B&B. A gas fire, an electric lamp, and a wash basin, with the occupier's shoes by the door, her handbag on the side table, her clothes folded on the armchair, and in the double bed, the silent and motionless shape of a woman. Having heard no snoring nor breathing, and seeing her peaceful face peeping over the covers, with her eyes shut and her pale skin blue, Paul knew she had passed away. But there was no shock, just sadness. He knocked on the door of room two. Mary, a guest passed away. Right, well, you're up, you deal with it. Great, thanks Mary. And with that, having seen enough dead bodies during the war and one or two in the hotel trade, he called the police and carried on with his duties. At 9.30am, PC Arthur Green attended the Grenville Hotel and reported, One deceased, mid-thirties female. No signs of break-in, 
no injuries or assault, no disturbance or robbery. No one had heard a disturbance. The door had been locked from the inside and the key was on the bedside table. At 10am, Dr. Gerard Malone Lee, the police surgeon, examined the body in situ. Female, early 30s, 5 foot 6, skinny, no obvious bruises, blood or cuts. Deceased for 6 hours, putting her time of death at 4am. Death by natural causes or possible poisoning. Although with her toxicology report coming back clean, her cheeks mottled with red blotches, her breath smelling of alcohol, and in her handbag, a bottle of milk of magnesia. It was clear that she had been unwell for a long time, suffering from high blood pressure, gastric ulcers, and an inflamed liver. At 11 a.m., the body of Mrs. Savile was removed, and the room was cleaned, ready for the next guest. As standard procedure, she was taken to Holborn Mortuary, so a full autopsy could establish exactly her cause of death and the police could inform Mrs. Savile's next of kin of her demise. That was it. Mrs. Savile, an unwell lady who liked to drink, had passed away peacefully in her sleep. But had she? Mrs. Savile was born Vera Cunnington on the 28th of August 1914, in the humble mining town of Saltburn in Yorkshire, as one of nine children to George and Mary, an iron miner and a housewife. Plagued by asthma, a bad heart and stomach problems, being sick for most of her formative years, Vera spent much of her childhood in bed. Drowsy with drugs, denied any love, and poked and prodded by dubious doctors, the only time she saw her pals in the playground was from a hospital window. Lacking a decent education, Vera left school aged 12, with no qualifications or skills. Vera always looked sickly, as a skinny brunette with scrunched up eyes, like all of the lights made her squint, small teeth which never showed, even when she smiled, and a very pale translucent skin, like she was haunted by her own ghost. Although always ill, she never cried, pitied, or complained about her many ailments. Her life was limited. She knew that. So what little she had left, she was going to enjoy. Diagnosed with gastric ulcers, an arrhythmic heart, and high blood pressure, so bad that she was unable to walk a few feet without getting out of breath. Doing only what she loved most, she shunned the doctor's advice by drinking and smoking whenever she liked, as ill health ravaged her life. In December 1935, age 20, with her firstborn son, William, born out of wedlock, Vera married William Crawford, a boiler repairman from Scotland, who was imaginatively nicknamed Jock. And three years later, their second son, Leslie, followed. Jock was a good husband, a solid dad, and by all accounts, including Vera's, they were happily married. But living each day like it was her last, being a wife and mother just wasn't part of Vera's plan. So with her drinking getting out of hand, her liver swelling and her debts stacking up, 
As she moved from job to job and flat to flat, it came as a real shock to Jock when she suggested that they separate. In 1941, for the sake of the kids, Jock tried to patch things up with Vera. But having made plans to meet her, she failed to turn up. In August 1942, with her life spiralling out of control, after her second arrest for theft, the judge pleaded with Vera to return to her family. She agreed, and the boys were excited to finally get their mum back. But Vera never showed up, and they never saw her again. Vera's world had become chaotic, as unwilling to accept any form of responsibility, she craved the love and attention of others, but lived her life as if she had a death wish. As a chronic alcoholic, Vera was a regular in the West End pubs, where sometimes she got part-time work as a cook, barmaid or cleaner, only to be sacked for drunkenness. Racking up debts, with her money squandered on booze and with nowhere to live, having already served one month in Brixton prison for prostitution, simply so she had somewhere to sleep, she picked up men in pubs and stayed in a series of cheap hotels in Bloomsbury, like the Bedford, the Ensley and the Grenfell Hotel. Known by the staff only by her face and to the other sex workers only as Vicky, although she was pleasant, polite and if she could afford it, she often tipped. Vera took very little care of herself, instead choosing to booze, smoke and accept unprotected vaginal and anal sex from her many male clients. Her life was coming to an end and without love, she had no reason to care. On the 7th of August 1948, just 11 days before her death, Vera was sacked from the Blue Post pub at number 6 Tottenham Court Road, having slapped a customer. In a single night, she had lost her job, her place to stay, and an honest income. And excluding the night she died, she was never seen again. So it made perfect sense to assume that she had died peacefully in her sleep. Only she hadn't. She had been murdered. Examined in situ at the Grenville Hotel, the police surgeon's preliminary assessment stated that she had died by natural causes, a logical conclusion which the pathologist had initially agreed with, given that she had no obvious cuts, bruises or bloodstains. But having conducted a full autopsy, Dr. Tier found two small crescent-shaped abrasions on either side of her spine, hidden by her hair at the top of her neck as well as a patch of burst blood vessels on her forehead, under her eyelids, across her cheeks, marks hidden by her red flushing caused by high blood pressure, gastric ulcers and heavy drinking, and burst blood vessels on the surface of her lungs and heart, meaning she had died of asphyxiation. And with no natural conclusion as to how she had suffocated, Dr. Tia determined that she had been strangled. Only with no ligature marks or hand-sized bruises around her neck. How was this possible? What began as a very ordinary death turned into a very unusual murder 
as the crime scene itself had thrown up several confusing questions. With the hotel's entrance door locked by the manager, with no windows open and no signs of a break-in, if she was murdered, how did her killer enter the hotel and escape? With the windowless room one being locked from the inside and the door key on the bedside table, if she was murdered, how did her killer lock himself in and then how did he escape? Why did no one hear anything? Given that seven people were in the hotel at the time, with Mary Rock next door in room two, separated by a thin partition wall, and Paul Jenkins in the basement below. When her handbag was examined, no money or jewellery had been stolen, and everything which could identify her, her bank books, ration cards and letters, had been removed. And stranger still, at 10.30am, when the builders returned to the hotel's top floor, on the annex roof above room one, they found a handmade knife which wasn't there the night before. It was a nine-inch blade cut from a French military-issue bayonet, a U-shaped metal handle tied with white wax string, and it was wrapped in a white bandage. And yet, it had no blood on it. So why was it there? Recalling the previous night, a Friday the 17th of September. Paul Jenkins, manager of the Grenville Hotel, stated to the police, The doorbell rang. It was just after midnight. I know it was as I heard Big Ben chime on the wireless. And Mary, who was in bed, always has me lock up the entrance door about then. I let in a man and a woman. They were looking for a room. I guess they missed their last train as they'd got no luggage about them. She was thirties, thin, had mousy hair, a pale face and red cheeks, with small teeth and wore a brown-yellow costume. He was about the same age, bit taller, bit thinner, in a dark brown suit, frayed at the cuffs, and a light rain mac. He's got grease-back hair, grey at the sides, dark bushy eyebrows, a long face, a long nose, large ears, and his two front teeth were yellowing. He seemed a nice enough chap. They both did. For Paul, he had sorted out a last-minute room for couples with no luggage many times before, and this time was equally as unremarkable and forgettable. They were just an ordinary pair of sweethearts, who kissed, held hands, and called each other darling. And although there was a faint smell of alcohol, as if they'd come from the pub, they seemed in good spirits and needed a good night's sleep. As was his moral obligation, Paul asked if they were married. The man confirmed they were. He paid 30 shillings in cash for a double room, wrote the name Mr. and Mrs. Savile in the registration book, as single couples often risked being denied a shared room on the grounds of immorality, and having informed the manager that he would need to leave early for work, he politely asked if his wife could be brought a pot of tea at 9am, which Paul did. In fact, the only detail which was strange, but not suspicious, was that, although the slightly meek man did all of the talking, it was the woman who made all of the decisions, stating them in a loud, clear voice in her husband's left ear, having informed Paul, You'll have to speak up. He's a bit deaf. That aside, the couple were handed a key to room one. They wished Paul a good night, locked the door, 
and making no sounds at all. That was the last time that the woman was seen alive. So if Vera was Mrs. Savile, who was Mr. Savile? And if they were so in love, why did he kill her? As a very distinctive man, having circulated his description in the newspapers, Mr. Savile wasn't difficult to track down. Two weeks later, the police were given a name, and it was Herbert Alfred Savile. The early life of Herbert Alfred Savile was remarkably similar to Vera's. Born just two years apart, Herbert was one of seven children to Frederick and Elizabeth, a plumber and a housewife. But as a small frail boy, plagued with hearing loss and headaches, having been hit on the head with a brick aged three, his most formative years were spent in a hospital bed. Missing his mum, the love he craved so much would be denied him, as with his depressed mother, an alcoholic father, crushed by the death of two infants, a thick cloud of grief hung over the family. Herbert always looked sickly, being thin, weak and pale-skinned, with a perpetual frown etched across his gaunt face, as a world of sound slowly escaped his failing ears and moving lips became but a muffle. And although a softly spoken boy, with good morals and manners, being so meek, he remained a loner. As quite a shy lad, what he wanted most was to be loved. But like sounds, love would evade him. Unwilling to let his disability dictate his life, having trained as an apprentice engineer, he served in the Royal Army Ordnance Corps, but with a volley of bomb blasts, having aggravated his deafness in both ears. On the 24th of October 1941, Herbert was declared medically unfit. He was discharged from the army and sunk into a depression. With no friends or close family, both parents dead, and having never had a girlfriend, by 1948, 32-year-old Herbert Savile was fed up with his lonely little life. He had so much love to give, but there was no one there for him to love. And then he met Vera. I first met her on the 13th of July, in a turning off Shaspi Avenue. She asked me for a light. Popping into a pub for a pint, the two pale and skilly loners sat side by side, being amazed at the similarity of their life stories, it seemed as if Herbert had found his soulmate. And over the coming weeks, as he treated his special lady to drinks and dinners, poems and perfume, loans and love letters, as a sickly lady living on borrowed time, he wanted to give her the life that she deserved, with a husband, a family and a home. Herbert had finally found love, only her life was a lie. As a veteran sex worker, who he only knew by the street name Vicky, having shunned any hint of a family life, Vera's job was to make the lonely men she met feel loved. 
She wasn't bad, evil or cruel. She was just a homeless, broke, chronic alcoholic, doing what she had to do to survive. Being besotted with her, Herbert got her to a hospital. But so acute was her inflamed liver, that the doctors ordered her to quit drinking immediately. But being a woman with a death wish, she didn't. Five days before her death, as an intoxicated Vera spat hurtful insults at Herbert, refusing to quit the drink, shunning her belated birthday present, and threatening to go to Piccadilly Circus to pick up a man who understood her. As Herbert sat on the train home, tearful and heartbroken, as his one true love cast him aside. I brooded on her drinking and prostitution, and I thought she would be better off dead. He had known her for just eight weeks. Sat in a solitary room at his sister's home, Herbert fashioned a handmade knife from a nine-inch French bayonet. I had every intention to kill her. And so, with his mind made up, he made plans to meet her. On Friday the 17th of September 1948, at 8.20pm, Vera and Herbert met in the Round Table public house, just off Leicester Square. They drank, chatted, kissed, and left at 10.45pm, as witnessed by the barmaid, Bridget O'Reilly. Feeling peckish, at 11pm, they brought two portions of fish and chips at number 1 Newport Place, as served by Frey Strom. Forty minutes later, Vera and Herbert took a taxi one mile north to Grenville Street. And a few moments later, after the bell of Big Ben had struck, they entered the Grenville Hotel. It was just a very ordinary evening. Once inside room one, Herbert locked the door behind them. Like most shabby lodgings, the windowless room smelt a little stale. But having slept in much worse, Vera made herself comfortable. She popped her shoes by the door, her handbag on the side table, her clothes folded on the armchair, and she sat by the blue flickering flame of the gas fire, warming her toes. Loving her more than she ever loved herself, and desperate to give a hopeless woman one last chance at a better life. Herbert later stated, When I got in the room, I asked her to give up the spirits, as it would be fatal for her. She knew it, and she said she didn't care. Herbert knew that Vera was a woman with a death wish, and loving her so much, he would be the man to fulfill it. From inside of his fawn raincoat, with a trembling hand, Herbert pulled out the foot-long knife, the full length of its nine-inch blade glistening in his misty eyes. As gulping aloud, he stammered, Look, I intend to kill you tonight. But instead of being afraid, she just laughed and said, Give me that thing. They didn't fight or argue. Instead, having confiscated the knife, she popped open the skylight, tossed it onto the roof, and feeling the crushed weight of his mistake, Herbert politely said, Perhaps it would be better if I go now. 
But Vera cooed. Shh, get your clothes off and come to bed. Which he did. And there the two lovers lay, side by side, wrapped in each other's arms. Vera fast asleep, knowing her death wish would be coming, but not here, and not now. And yet, as she slept soundly, over the next three hours, as his hands caressed her soft face, Herbert brooded his deadly dilemma. I got out of bed. I switched on the bedside lamp and sat there looking at her. She awoke. I don't know why. I sprang on top of her, my legs pinning her arms by the side. And with the woolen bed sheets up to her neck, being so soft that even a slight pressure couldn't bruise her skin, I strangled her with both hands. Hidden by her hair, the only marks visible were two small crescents embedded at either side of her spine, made by his fingernails, which had slipped beyond the bedsheet. I suppose it lasted three minutes, the strangling. And as Herbert's hands tightly squeezed around her pale thin neck, as her flushed skin matched the mottled redness of her booze-rattled cheeks, and as her legs twitched for the last time, the life of Herbert's one and only lover slowly drained away. And once again, he was alone. With the hotel door locked, I jumped through the skylight. I got the Russell Square tube to Liverpool Street, and near Bethnal Green, I tore up the letters and threw them out of the train window. On the 10th of October 1948, at Inn Road Police Station, 32-year-old Herbert Saville was arrested and charged with the murder of Vera Crawford. As an easily identifiable man, who was witnessed entering a locked room just hours before her death, whose fingerprints and hair were found at the scene, and having made a full confession... He was tried at the Old Bailey, pleaded guilty, and was sentenced to death. But having been commuted to life in prison, he died 21 years later, age 53. It began as the unremarkable passing of an unwell woman discovered in a hotel bed, whose death had initially been reported as by natural causes. But by following strict protocols, which required the police to identify the deceased, to inform the next of kin, and for a pathologist to determine the exact cause of death. Having examined every piece of evidence, the police had uncovered a murder. But what they found wasn't an intricate plan by a criminal mastermind made to make a very cunning murder look like an ordinary death. It wasn't a genius stroke of luck by a hapless convict whose escape from justice was aided by two distracted detectives. And it wasn't the expert execution of a crazed killer who knew how to cover his tracks. And although a coincidental chain of events led to the discovery of a dead body in a locked room, it may feel like the contrived opening chapter of a tawdry murder mystery. But in truth, it isn't. Herbert Saville killed Vera Crawford because he loved her and he couldn't have her. That's it. There's no myths, no mystery, and no alternate theories. 
as it's just a very ordinary murder. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. For all of Mickey's milky-smelling murky milers, there's more floppy dangle fruits after the break. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week. The investigation into the high school massacre is... high school massacre. At least 14 dead, 50 injured. 13 people were killed today in a mass shooting. That includes a suspected gunman. Coming soon, Active Shooter, a podcast that studies the psychology, motives, and methods behind some of the most notorious active shooters in North America and beyond. East Alameda Avenue. They're saying somebody's shooting in the auditorium. We will discuss the whys, the hows, and most importantly, the proposed solutions. Can the proper mix of mental health services and gun access put a stop to what has now become an accepted everyday occurrence? Have we become desensitized and accepting of this new phenomenon? Join us as we break down each case and discuss the failures that led to each event and how we can identify and stop them in the future. Join us soon, and please subscribe to Active Shooter. In a world of wonder. See? That's my feet! And horror. The military advised that the flesh-eating pigeons can only be stopped by destroying the brainstem, and that they do not poop. That makes no sense. Why did they do that? One podcast fights the forces of evil. The new and improved diabolical disintegrating death ray. <laughs> Triumphs over adversity. Now I'm not sure how to pronounce this word. <laughs> and brings hope. Live your life. Joy. <laughs> and silliness. Perfectly normal. That podcast is release the clown coming to ears near your head now release the clown sketch comedy podcast on podbean itunes youtube spotify and all reputable platforms oh this is most pleasing yes quite marvelous A huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who are Sarah Ann, Laura Bell, Michael Mullen, and Maureen Gallagher. I thank you. All of you should have received a very exclusive Murder Mile thank you card from me, plus some exclusive goodies in the post and online. Woo! If you fancy supporting Murder Mile and Patreon, you can do that for as little as $3 a month, where you'll receive exclusive crime scene photos where available, Location videos, a weekly ebook of the unedited script, plus loads more. And for $10 a month patrons and above, they get their weekly episode of Murder Mile on Mondays ad free. As always, if you want to see what the murder locations look like, every Thursday I upload a blog for each episode with a map, location videos, and photos. There is also a link to this in the show notes. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, everyone. How are we all? Are we all good? Mm. It's early this morning. It's early. It's very early. Um, Today is going to be one of those days where it's going to be another 30 degrees Celsius today. Uh, And because I'm in a boat... Obviously, because uh, it's made of steel. Oh, oh, sorry. Welcome to Extra Mile. Sorry, I should have said that. Welcome to Extra Mile, everyone. Blah, blah, blah. Unscripted, unedited. This is the waffly bit. Because uh, it's made of boat and the boat's made of steel. Uh, if it's 30 degrees outside and you touch the top of the boat, it's too hot to touch. And inside, it can be as much as 50 degrees. So I've I've woke up super, super early before dawn to start recording this episode. So then I can, I can close all the windows, which I've done. And uh, uh, there we go doors open lovely and i can record this without sweating because i've had a couple of episodes where i've been unable to read the script because it's just been so sweaty and hot uh but not a good not a good start to the day today uh oh my pillows have all come out of alignment oh my pillows oh day started badly oh i've run out of gas so if you're if you're if you enjoy listening to this episode because I make a cup of tea, uh, this ain't going to happen. I've got no gas. I'm running out of gas. One bottle was empty. I had one bottle that was still had loads of gas in it. And I thought, oh, I've got I've got at least three months left on that bottle. Uh, but I've been away for about 10 days and I've just come back. And I was like, oh, what's that horrible gas smell? I can smell a gas smell somewhere. And I switched on the gas this morning. It's all empty. And it's a bank holiday. Oh, there's no gas. So I've got to go and find a builder's merchant or someone somewhere that's got a gas bottle. Otherwise, I've got no, I've got no hot water. Uh, I can't do any cooking. Doesn't matter about heating because it's summer and it's bloody hot. But oh, so yeah, no. So I, I haven't had a cup of tea. I haven't had a cup of coffee. I'm sitting here with a glass of water, bottle of water. Oh dear. 
Oh, yeah, them knackers. Well, oh, I hope this doesn't make everyone yawn. So, that was, uh, this is Extra Mile, unscripted, unedited bit. I hope you like that. Um, so, that was the, uh, yeah, I've been dog, dog sitting all week. This has been weird. I've been dog sitting um, uh, uh, my, my brother's and sister-in-law's dogs, which has been good fun. Two, two doggies, uh, both quite needy. So I've, I edited the last two episodes, the Robert Calvi episode there, uh, and uh, I don't remember what the episode is after that. What's after Robert Calvi? I don't remember. This is how tired I am. I don't remember what the last episode was. One before this one. Uh, so I did that one there as well. Uh, edited those. Oh yeah, that was the uh, Mary Ann Moriarty one. <gasps> I edited those there, but I couldn't record there because the dogs bark all bloody day long. So I knew I couldn't record there. So I deliberately uh, recorded and then get got myself so I could edit there. So I edited them, them there. And I finished off writing this one there, but I couldn't write the next one there because it's just... Oh, those dogs are so needy. Uh, <laughs> just like... <laughs> like every six seconds. So, oh, yeah, I didn't get as much work done as I needed. So I'm about a week behind there. So, uh, so, uh, sorry, I'm trying to work out what I'm saying. So, uh, so th- this was the murder of Vera Crawford. This was a bit of a difficult one to write because originally I started writing it and I, th- I thought, oh, this could be a, a, a two-parter. Do I write it? So I wrote it as a two-parter. The first part was about how it was just, uh, uh, do you know it looked like a no one had been murdered at all it looked like it was just a natural death so that was going to be part one then part two was going to be uh, how it was how oh, yeah, how the police worked out it was a murder uh, and I, I did that I wrote them all as a two parter and then and then when I reread them and I thought oh who cares do you know it wasn't the story was interesting but I just didn't feel it was strong enough for a two parter so then I had to rewrite it as a one parter uh, I think it's a, I think it's better as a one-parter. Uh, so, uh, but really, what, the reason why I wanted to do this was I wanted to, um, especially with a lot of people who listen to a lot of true crime. Sometimes there's a lot of people who listen to too much true crime. Um, uh, when they listen to podcasts and you ask for th- theories about it, a lot of people are kind of obsessed with theories and conspiracies, and you know their brains work overtime, and they're like, "Oh, the, the police conspiracy! The police went on it. Bodies were switched. There were assassins. Uh, like all these theories going." And it's like, no, murders don't happen that way. Do you know, most murders are very simple. Police don't approach a case and go, "Whoa, whoa, whoa I bet we're on it. I bet someone switched the body." Do you know, there's not theories all the time. There's not conspiracies. Things like that don't happen. Murders are very simple. It's normally crimes of passion like this. It's it's not premeditated. Things go wrong. It's very simple to easy work out to to work out. Um, and if there there are and there will be things in there that don't make sense and it's not because people are particularly clever and that they they they're good at hiding things people aren't particularly clever especially when they're committing a murder they're very upset they make mistakes and that's what I wanted to get across with this episode uh, so even though at the start it very much looks like a kind of a Sherlock Holmes locked room mystery where you know the door's locked on the outside the keys on so the door's locked the keys on the inside the woman's in bed by herself there's no signs of cuts or bruises there's no murder weapon there's no way of escape or so it seems there's a murder weapon on top of the roof uh, so at the start you think you think 
uh, you know, uh, it doesn't look like a murder. It just looks like, like a locked room mystery. But when you look at it, when you work out all the evidence, it's actually quite simple. Uh, so that's what I want you to do. Uh, but just, just as a timeline here, in total, the police knew this was a murder after about two hours. Uh, after the after the first policeman had turned up, so the first policeman turned up said, "Yeah, it looks like it looks like a, a standard uh, natural death." The doctor turned up, um, Doctor Gerard Malone Lee. Obviously, he looked at the body in situ. He he didn't move the body at that point because they hadn't uh, then photographed the scene, so he just had to look at it as it was. He couldn't turn over the body. So, if you're wondering why he didn't notice the marks on the back of the neck, it's because he couldn't turn over the body. Uh, that was done at the autopsy later on, and by all intents and purposes, without having done much of the, because um, you couldn't do any tests on the body at the point, you just had to really look at it, and uh, everything looked like a natural death. But uh, uh, they took it to the autopsy, they did all the tests, the, after about two hours, they're like, yeah, we, we found the marks on the back of the neck, things are suspicious. When they were sort of checking out the room, they found the knife on top. There were things that just didn't make sense, the lack of ID, things like that. So after about five hours, it was confirmed that it was almost certainly a murder. So that's a time scale, really, on that. It was pretty quick. Uh, uh, I'm going to read you a section. This is what I... St- I part of this, this I've used back in uh, in this episode, but this is a section of the, the two-parter that was edited out. Um, a lot of it before was really about their movements that day but I I, I stripped a lot of it out but here goes Uh, um, so uh, her description uh, 5 foot 6 early 30s this was uh, Vicky slash uh, Vera her description uh, a 5 foot 6 early 30s skinny brulette was unremarkable and no one matching that had been reported missing her clothes, a yellow skirt, jacket and jumper, which they often call a costume in that era, a green coat and, a, and black shoes were fashionable but not unique, and her brown plastic handbag was full of everyday items you'd expect to find. Earrings, hair clips, aspirin, lipsticks, combs, face powder, uh, nail polish, ticket stubs, hair tongs, purse money, cigarettes, matches and aspirin. I've used, I've said aspirin twice there. Uh, and yet she had no ID. No ID. She carried nothing to identify herself. No bank books, ration cards or letters. Even though she had a notepad and pen, all that remained was a scrap of, hand, uh, hand, scrap of a handwritten letter which simply, which simply read, With love, Vicky, three kisses. That originally was going to be the title of the episode, was just With love, Vicky, three kisses. Uh, but who was Vicky? This was before we knew she was uh, in this episode. This was before we knew she, her name was Vera. Recall in the previous night... Uh, of Friday the 17th of September Paul Jenkins the manager of the Grenville Hotel stated to the police the doorbell rang it was just after midnight I know it was as I heard <coughs> as I heard Big Ben chime on the wireless and Mary who was in bed always has me lock up the entrance door about then we've used this bit um, I let in a man and a woman uh, they were looking for a room I guess they missed their train as they had no luggage about them. She was 30s, thin, had mousy hair, a pale face with red red cheeks, small teeth and wore a brownie yellow costume. He was about the same age, a bit bit taller, a bit thinner, in a dark brown suit, frayed at the cuffs and a light rain mac. I've seen him before, I think, but I don't know. Uh, He's got greased back hair, greying at the sides, dark bushy eyebrows, long face, long nose, long ears and two front teeth teeth which were yellowing this he seemed like a nice enough chap they both did pretty identifiable person 
Uh, I already mentioned before that he, uh, there was nothing suspicious about this. They seemed like an ordinary pair of sweethearts. They kissed, they held hands, they called each other darling. Uh, Paul, uh, the manager, asked, uh, as his moral obligation around that time, asked if they were married, because obviously if you weren't married and you were sharing a room in that era, it was kind of very frowned upon. It wasn't illegal, it was just frowned upon. Um, uh, uh, Herbert... Uh, at this point, he doesn't know that his name is Herbert. Uh, he paid uh, 30 shillings in cash for a double room, filled in the registration book as Mr. and Mrs. Savile of 27 Snakes Lane, Woodford in Essex. And having informed the manager that he would need to leave early for early, early for work, he politely asked if his wife, inverted commas, could be brought a cup of tea at 9am, which Paul did. Uh, let me just jump forward a bit. Uh... Right, yeah. All, all, nothing was suspicious. They had got the room key, said goodnight, locked the door, made no sounds, and that was the last time Vicky was seen alive. So who was the deceased woman? Mrs. Savile or Vicky? Because obviously they found a little scrap of uh, the letter there that's just signed uh, with love, Vicky. I was going to use their letters a lot more. I'll go into their letters uh, later. That was, that became a big part of part of one of the episodes but I didn't use it in the end uh, when police officers were dispatched to the home of Mr and Mrs Savile at Snakes, 27 Snakes Lane in Woodford, Essex what they found was not a home but was an undertaker but was an undertaker who nothing of, knew nothing of a Mr and Mrs Savile examining the registration book three similar signatures were found in the same handwriting of Mr and Mrs same handwriting for a Mr and Mrs Stone of 27 Snakes Lane four weeks prior on the 13th of August, the 17th of July and the 13th of July. 13th of July is the day they met. So that's where they would have gone on the first day. Uh, they met and then they, they went to the hotel afterwards. Um, which is kind of... Um, I always find it interesting that uh, Herbert always says that he didn't know that she was a prostitute. I think he did. Uh, check in other local hotels... The Bradford Hotel on 40 Burner Street found bookings for a Mr. and Mrs. Savile on the 27th of August uh, in the same handwriting and the 10th of September. And the Ensley Hotel on Ensley Street uh, dated the 5th of August in the same handwriting, but uh, signed in the name of Herbert Alfred Crawford, which is interesting, that's her surname, of 30 Lampton Street, Essex. He didn't live there. Uh, a person and place which did not exist. So I'm adding in my own notes as I go along here. Uh, and although this may seem sinister, living in an era where sex out of wedlock was seen as uh, was seen as sinful, and unmarried couples sharing a hotel room would be frowned upon, and often turned away away for fear fear of bringing the hotel into disrepute. Using a false name was quite common, which it was. Uh, so far, nothing had aroused suspicions of the police, and why would it? As an unidentified body is discovered every two days in England, it is, uh, with 140,000 people going missing every year. So far, all they had was an unknown, unknown woman found in a hotel bed whose death, whose death was listed as natural causes, possibly owing to stomach ulcers, high blood pressure and liver disease. Wearing no wedding ring, she, she may have lied about, about her details to conceal an affair or sex out of wedlock with a man who hadn't reported her missing as he was still at work and was probably unaware that she was dead. When shown a photo of the deceased woman, a familiar pattern started to emerge of her, mo of her movements. Uh, always arriving late at one of several local hotels, 
a woman called Mrs. Savile uh, had a hard of hearing husband, had her hard of hearing husband <coughs> pay for one night in a double room. He spoke to the staff. She dictated the words and having ordered a pot of tea for 9am, which they did every time, uh, he would leave early for work at about 6am and she stayed in bed until noon. They were always polite, always pleasant and never raised any suspicions. No one knew what her real surname was. The only one thing was certain, on several occasions, the man had called her Vicky. Interesting that uh, she always used her sex name with him, her sex trade name with him. And he thought that's what her name was, but it wasn't. It was Vera. Um, when the police conducted a search of the missing of missing persons with the result of Savile, Stone or Crawford and the first name of Vicky or Victoria, they drew a blank, obviously, because they didn't know that her, her real name was Vera. Uh, but by conducting a thorough series of interviews with those who had met her in passing, fragments of overheard conversations would eventually lead to this, the discovery of her true identity. These were the facts. Vicky was local. She lived in Bloomsbury for at least 18 months had stayed in local hotels several times a week and shared rented lodgings with friends in roads in and around the Grenville Hotel. Vicky, this is all done on the same day. The police actually, uh, as soon as they worked out, because they, they need to find out who she was, they did all, all this in one day. Uh, Vicky wasn't from London, although only slight. Um, if she... <coughs> although... Oh, I'm going to cough a tea, cup of tea, that's why I'm coughing. Uh, although only slight, if she had moved away... For more, hang on, let me redo that. Vicky wasn't from London, although only slight, as if she had moved away for more, uh, as if she had moved away more than a decade ago. Her accent had an unmistakable twang of someone from from the from Northern England, possibly Yorkshire. Vicky had no fixed address. She lived from day to day, rarely staying in the same place for too long. So with no home address, the police couldn't locate any record to identify her. But with Vicky being a regular at many West End pubs in and around Leicester Square, such as the Crown, the Porcupine, the George, the White Bear and the White Lion, Bridget O'Reilly, the barmaid of the Round Table Public House at 26 St Martin's Court, had told the police that Vicky used a P.O. box, a post office box, to receive her letters. The post office box was a few doors down inside a newsagent's at 37 St Martin's Court. The box was empty, and although she received, she retrieved her letter, letters every week for the last four years, having paid in cash, the newsagents never knew her name, but what they did know was that was where Vicky worked. Between the 15th of November uh, 1947 and the 17th, of August 1948 just 11 days before she died Vicky had worked as a cook and cleaner at the Blue Post public house at 6 Tottenham Court Road just off Soho within the day having pieced together scattered details of an unknown woman using some scant fragments of unconfirmed gossip and overheard conversations the next of kin were informed and the deceased woman's sister positively ID'd her body at Hope and Mortuary that was, a, a, I think they said around three o'clock they did that. Uh, the police now had a name, but it wasn't Mrs. Havel, Mrs. Savile, Mrs. Stone or even Vicky. It was Vera Crawford. But who was she and why had she been murdered? Uh, let me just whiz on a bit here because we've already done all of this bit. Yeah, we used all that bit. Great, good. 
so the body was taken to Hoban Mortuary uh, for full autopsy, uh, <coughs> conducted by Dr. Richard Donald Tier, who we've heard from before, who conducted the post-mortem. He said there were two small abrasions uh, uh, at the back of the neck, one about three quarters of an inch long by uh, a quarter of an inch wide. Uh, though on the midline of the spine, uh, she also said when they looked carefully, they found that she had some small abrasions on the lower left on her lower. Oh, excuse me, that was a burp. A lower left that was a bit disgusting. A lower left lip uh, and one on her collarbone. Um, she had burst capillaries on her forehead, as mentioned, uh, on her eyelids and on her cheeks and on the surface of her lungs and heart. That suggested that she'd been uh, asphyxiated, but um, the rest of it, because her face was quite red anyway, it was kind of hard to see those. Uh, one odd detail is that Savile said he strangled her, but there were no bruises on the front of her neck. Uh, Although Dr. Tier said that the lack of bruises could be attributed to bed, bed clothing being uh, in front of the thumbs and and the neck. Uh, or, or that also, you know, because he was a smaller man, it could have been just gentler pressure. Uh, so that's why they didn't actually find that uh, they were unable to say that she'd been strangled earlier on. It was, you know, it wasn't it wasn't that obvious. You know, if you if you strangle someone around the neck now you will bruise their neck but uh obviously the soft sheet on top of her uh identifying savile okay police issued a description of the man uh on the 4th of october 1948 uh di hodgkins ds philip carter carter uh ddi stone uh, unrela uh, unrelated to that name, visited Savile at uh, 37 Bruno Road in Walthamstow, which is where his sister lived, and saw Miss Elsie Savile, that's his older sister. Um, uh, he fitted the description, and his handwriting compared favourably, as I said, uh, to those that were registered in the Grenville Hotel. If you're on uh, Patreon, uh, have a look on there. I've, I've shown some examples. I've, I've, I've shown... I've got no photos of these guys. Unfortunately, they weren't. The photographs weren't included in the file, but there is. Uh, you can see their handwriting uh, taken from different uh, uh, registration books and different hotels. Uh, they, they, they. Description matched the handwriting matched, but Savile had gone away that day, leaving a note for his sister saying, "Dear Dimp, that was her nickname, gone away for a day or two. Don't worry, Bert." Uh, apparently he did that a lot whenever he was going away he'd leave a little note saying it, uh, that he was doing that uh, uh, she confirmed he had been out on the evening of the 17th of September which is the night of the murder and did not know when he had returned uh, he was away 18th to the 20th uh, he returned on the 20th of September there was a big hole thing in in the case file about where he went he went to loads of different places trying to escape and it in the end he just ended up coming home so i didn't put it in because it was just a bit pointless uh he returned home on the 20th of september uh resumed work on the 27th of september on on the 1st of october the newspapers uh sorry i thought it was raining newspapers uh, uh had his description that was included even his sister saw the description and even she said uh, it sounded like him because he's very identifiable and very easy to spot. Um, he even read about it in the Walthamstow Guardian on Monday the 4th of October uh, and then he left again. He hitchhiked to Portsmouth 
and then he returned back on the 9th of October, which is when they picked him up. Um, was, they were, they put surveillance on his house for a good couple of days to watch him, and they uh, 7.35 p.m. on the 9th of October, um, they uh, visited his home. They took him to Grayson Road Police Station. There he was arrested. Uh, D.I. Hodgkins said that he answered to the description of a man... Uh, who entered the Grenville Hotel with Vera Crawford on the night of the 17th of September, he was cautioned and replied, I am the man, I am responsible, I strangled her. And then he made a full statement. Uh, fingerprints were found on the table lamp in room one, which matched Savile's, uh, and on his clothes, taken at the time of the rest, the lower part of his shirt and his vest, and the fly opening of his underpants, there was evidence of menstrual blood. I haven't put this in because this is, it throws everything off. He offered no evidence for these stains, and yet um, they did not belong to Vera, as she was not menstruating at the time of death, and denied associating with any women during this period between between the murder and the arrest. Obviously, he did or visited many prostitutes. There's a lot going on in this case that I've kind of I've deliberately not tried to answer i just wanted to in the story i wanted to tell you just a very simple story uh about you know someone who says that he loves someone and he loves her so much and you know uh uh but there's a lot more going on in this case and i just i just didn't want to overcomplicate it because there's a lot that could be co- confusing oh you're i haven't had my tea I haven't had a cup of tea now his clothes were examined, taken at the time of the arrest. He was wearing a khaki pullover, which contained head hair, which matched Vera's. Grey flannel trousers, which had been dry cleaned. Dark grey flannel trousers. The flies were bloodstained, as mentioned. Uh, his shirt was bloodstained, as were his underpants and his vest. Remember the days of wearing vests. Uh, bloodstains was type O, which was Vera's. Uh, that's all they could do in that era, was type A, type O, that's it. Uh, and semen was found. Arraigned before Mr Justice Humphreys at the Old Bailey on the 18th of November 1948, he pleaded guilty to the charge of murder and was sentenced to death. Mr Anthony Hawke for the prosecution uh, and Mr Beresford, Beresford Craddock for the defence. Um, in a letter dated the 2nd of December 1948, received by the Under Secretary of the State, commuted his sentence to penal servitude for life. Uh, it was stated that she had goaded him... Uh, to murder him and this was a justifiable justifiable provocation interestingly they didn't really say what the goading was Uh, uh, on the 12th of november 1948 brixton prison um, his mental condition was assessed he was received in custody on the 11th of october placed under mental observation in in a prison hospital uh, said he had a normal childhood, except he was a bedwetter up until 13 years old. Interestingly, many murderers, bedwetters, uh, murderers were bedwetters. Murderers, serial killers were bedwetters. Uh, uh, but this didn't seem to upset him. He preferred his own company as a boy. He was in the Boy Scouts, but never became a patrol leader. He was ambitious, always wanted to better himself, became more solitary after discharge. Um, after army discharge, sorry, infrequently had sex only with prostitutes, uh, no evidence of perverted habits, a moderate drinker but a heavy smoker. He had chronic catarrh, oh yeah, this is all about his, uh, uh, chronic catarrh to his throat and tubes of his ears. At an interview, he was uh, mildly depressed and frightened looking. 
uh, and yet he was cooperative, frank and rational. No sense of morbid thoughts, average to superior intelligence, normal level of no, ugh, levels of emotion. Um, states if he hadn't murdered the girl, he would be living with her and supporting her. Normal, no signs of insanity. He was quiet and well behaved. He prefers to read the mix and play games with the other inmates. He was declared insane and was fit for trial. Uh, he was sent to Penterfield Prison awaiting his death. Uh, this was appealed on the 2nd of December 1948 and the pardon was given on the 9th of December. Uh, he died in 1969 aged 53. Uh, according to the records he died in and around um, uh, uh, Islington area and uh, but Islington area is also the same area as Pentonville Prison. So uh, I can't find out exactly where he died, but it's it's believed that he, he may uh, still have been in prison when he passed away. Uh, we don't really know. We don't really know. So what else have I got in here? Oh, is that it? Was that all I put in? I thought I got more than that. No, I didn't. Let's, let, me, let me find some letters. There was some... Um, let me just kind of... Un, unzoom this. Sorry, because because I got bad eyesight. I have to. I can write on a regular page size page, but when I'm reading it, I, uh, maybe it's a dyslexia thing. I have to have the the le lettering really big because uh, the smaller it is, the more I stumble. The bigger it is, the better it is. Um, let's have a look. We've done the autopsy bit. Done Vera. So there's a letter from. Uh, Obviously, he took out all the letters from her uh, her bag and destroyed them. Uh, police actually went. They covered the tracks. They, obviously, this was about two weeks later. They covered the tracks around um, from the area from uh, Russell Street. Russell Street to Liverpool Street and they covered the tracks to find evidence of letters but there was nothing there but obviously do you know it's two weeks had gone do you know what what were they going to find and exactly where had he dumped it he was unable to say uh, but they found some letters inside his um, his room his bedroom which were from Vicky um, so these were sent from him so uh, this is postmarked uh, 12th of August 1948 so this was about a month before they died dear Bert just got your note I've been so ill uh, I'm so glad that you put your address on it otherwise I would never have been able to find you these all went to her P.O. box uh, uh, no sorry this went to him uh, but her letters would have gone to her letters from him would have gone to her P.O. box. Uh, I hope you get this before tomorrow night, Friday. They always met up on a Friday night. I'm in I'm in the post office, Leicester Square, writing it. So you will have to excuse the scribble. I must see you. There is so much I want to say. I will meet you in the round table opposite the post office, Leicester Square. Uh, there is a little side street right opposite. It's the first pub on the right. Come in by the public bar. Tomorrow, Friday, 8pm, if you can manage it. I've missed you terribly. I must see you and talk to you. I'm I'm so terribly unhappy. Please come and see me. If you don't, I'll understand. Love, Vicky. Kiss, kiss, kiss. Uh, there's another one that I wanted to do. Uh, there was a whole section I was going to do about... Because Vicky had loads of clients as well. And no one really knew who this Mr. Savile was. So uh, there was a whole section on this. There was one called Johnny. 
Uh, Johnny, five foot ten, thirty years old, lived in Twickenham. Well spoken, fair hair, dark toothbrush, moustache, clean shaven, good teeth, full face, nicely spoken, and well dressed. Um, there's another one also called, called Johnny. He was thirty two, six foot two, broad build, fair hair, blue eyes, two teeth missing. Bert, this is this is our one, Herbert Savile. Uh, Jock, not her husband. There was another one called Jock. Obviously, he was Scottish because that's, you know, everyone who's Scottish, you have to call him Jock. Uh, 30 years old, 5 foot 10, clean shaven, scruffy, black wavy hair, greased back, strong Scottish accent. Uh, was a porter uh, at the Quality Inn nearby. Um... Uh, her husband at the time was in Leeds, lived in Leeds around that point. He'd left London with the kids, so he was not uh, even considered as a murder suspect. They met him. He was a nice guy. Another guy called Fred, who was an Irishman, worked as a dish collector at the Silver Grill in Leicester Square. Another guy called Joe, who she briefly lived with in Bloomsbury. Uh, five foot six, ruddy complexion, no accent, softly spoken. Uh, there was loads... Um, there was a load, a big old hoo ha of who who her boyfriend is. Who was who was Mister Savile? Uh, let me just try and find some yeah, sightings with the death man. Yeah, interestingly, uh, where she met, uh, I mentioned very briefly in there that uh, they went for they left the round table. They went fish and chips at number one Newport Place. That's ten doors down from the um, oh, what's it called? <sighs> the nightclub where the shooting was the two-part episode i did see i can't remember anything at the moment it's just down from there it's just around the corner from the um original gordon west the guy the guy who burnt to death in the pub toilet the fish and chips shop was just around there they met she met edna de campo uh her old flatmate and chatted to her briefly uh, in Leicester Court. Leicester Court is just by the side of the Warner Cinema. And it was in the Warner Cinema, cinema I think we talked about it before, with the um, um, the unfortunate Mr. Johnson, where his lady friend would meet young men in there and take them into the Warner Cinema and have sex with them in the cinema. Mm. Ooh, very exciting. Uh, this is a, a letter uh, from Vicky to Bert, uh, dated one week before her death. Darling Bert, you must try and forgive me. Um, it was her birthday. I briefly mentioned this in the episode. It had been her birthday. He'd sent her uh, a card with like five pounds in it, which is you know quite a lot of money for then, really. Um, so just over, I think it was just over a hundred pounds ish. She kind of rejected it. You know, she was she was being quite unfair to him. Really, he seemed like a relatively decent bloke um darling bert you must first try and forgive me for not answering you please do if uh i didn't get your letter today i've been ill over at my sister's and i'm just coming up to see if you had written darling i've missed you so so very much i got a couple of hours work at the alcazar picture house i couldn't do it darling i've been thinking i've been thinking if it wouldn't be much better for us if we were together as you say um, I know we would be happy. So if you're agreeable, I'm going to spend the weekend looking around. It appears to be looking around for flats. I saw a couple in Camden Town Way. If that wouldn't be too far for your work. Uh, you can you can tell me tomorrow what you think. Um, he worked at the same place. He worked at the... Uh, at the uh, no, sorry, wrong person. So I'm thinking about another case now. 
Uh, uh, where are we? Oh, I've lost my place. If that wouldn't be too far for your work, you can tell me tomorrow what you think. Uh, I'll be where you said. Oh, Bert, it wasn't your fault about the argument. It was mine. Uh, I know I'm nasty sometimes, so please let us both forget about it, shall we? I'm sitting in the park writing this, so it's very awkward. So please excuse the scribble. I never could write letters anyway. Until tomorrow, darling. I love you. Cheerio, Vicky. Three kisses. Uh, what was there? I just want to find something that was interesting because it was things that were found inside his room. Right, so these are all other things as well. There's another whole thing in there. When I was looking into the case, police investigated him for uh, the murder of another woman a couple of years later it's called the woman in the fridge and they said he wasn't anything to do with it but it was just odd that he was connected to it so um who knows he he might pop up again um but a note was found uh, in the living room was a note in the handwriting of vera crawford which read uh vicky 7 p.m uh blue posts public house tottenham court road opposite the dominium there was a whole section in here where he had left her a note in the pub that she worked at because he wanted to meet her police found that that was linking to how he was going to meet her that night uh there was a copy of the sunday dispatch newspaper with an article regarding that case um they obviously they found the knife well they didn't find the knife in his in his flat uh they found a workbench and an upper portion of the french bayonet uh nine inches had been cut off had been sawn off uh but the the ends were similar uh they had some uh the white wax string was there and the white bandage was all there police confirmed it was exactly the same materials um here we go uh searching his home uh they found two photos of vicky inverted commas from the newspapers on which he had written nesem magia magia delore which uh I don't need to tell you because my, my Italian there was amazing. It means no uh, no more sorrow. And underneath it, he had written, never, 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 never. And on the back of the article about the murders of Helen Friedman, who was Russian Dora. These, all these murders happened in Soho around the same time. Uh, Rachel Fennick, alias Ginger Ray, and Vera Crawford. He had written, uh, this will be French. I'm not going to read this out because it's... Uh, uh, it's oh, it's only French, isn't it? Uh, but what he'd written in French, he'd served in France over that time, so he was fluent in French, and his Italian was quite good as well. Uh, uh, in French, he had written, "In the end, one is buried, and that is for all time." It's kind of odd that he had uh, articles about uh, other dead prostitutes uh, in Soho in his possession around the time, or it could have been just co- coincidence because it was. <sighs> Yeah, actually, uh, Ginger Ray was Ginger Ray was September nineteen forty-eight. It was around the same time as well. Hmm. I wonder if uh, that's interesting, isn't it? Russian door. We're hoping to do soon. I'm still trying to get out of the case file. It's 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 a pig to get hold of. Uh, oh yeah, one week prior, Savlad sent Vera a letter. Um, a nasty one. He'd sent a nasty one, which he had apologised for. We don't know about that letter because he had destroyed it. He also sent her a uh, four pounds as a birthday present. Her birthday was on the twenty eighth of August, so it just gone. Uh, 
just having a look to see what else there is that might be interesting because it because it was a two-parter and then i i took a lot out in the end uh when it became a one-parter uh no i think that's all good what was this one? Oh, i've deleted that as well i've deleted the thing about the fact that uh of the woman in the fridge yeah i think that's all good anyway that's that that's that that's done uh hopefully it's hopefully the bilges merchants are gonna open up soon which means i can go to them and go excuse me kind sirs do you have some gas some gas bottles oh god it's about it's about two miles away i'm gonna have to wheel it all the way there and back that's gonna be a pig so i'm gonna do that i've got two tours tomorrow uh i think annabelle you're coming on the tour i think kim nixon you're coming on the tour as well uh who else is on the tour tomorrow we've uh uh who else is on the tour uh marita 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 you're on the tour as well who else is on the tour uh, we've, got, we've got loads we've got a big tour tomorrow that's going to be a very busy one and then obviously uh yeah lauren lauren got your hen do tomorrow as well so looking forward to that only it's going to be about 30 degrees tomorrow so it's going to be hot so we're going to have to take this nice and carefully and slowly anyway that was extra mile for that episode hope you enjoyed that episode next week's episode uh i've already started working on that should be quite interesting i think it's it's a familiar one it's one that i think some of you may have already heard before may have already heard before uh but i i think i've got some an interesting angle on it i think so we'll have fun with that great okay that was that episode hope you enjoyed that i'm going to try and edit this today before it gets too hot i'm going to get some gas uh oh, i need to have a poo as well uh you didn't need to know that right that's the end of extra mile hope you enjoyed it speak to you all soon bye 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 ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.